musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And it sure is good to be back here with you again this week. I hope life is treating you well these days. Things are uh, certainly looking up for Sasha Shulgin and for Gary Fisher, both of whom are recovering nicely from their respective surgeries. So uh, all of your positive thoughts and well wishes are doing a good job. And uh, speaking of well wishes, just uh, yesterday we received a very generous donation from longtime saloner Louis G., and uh, in addition to sending some money to help offset the expenses associated with these podcasts, Lewis has uh, also been participating in the ongoing comments on our psychedelicsalon.org blog. And uh, just as I was about to begin recording today's podcast, I also received notification that we uh, just received a donation from Garrett W. So, uh, Garrett and Lewis, uh, thank you ever so much for keeping these podcasts coming. Your donations mean a lot to me and uh, to all of our fellow saloners, I'm sure. Well, we've got a lot to cover today, and so let's get to our first part of this podcast, which is a talk that Bruce Damer gave at the Mind States Conference held in Oaxaca, Mexico, a couple of years ago. This, uh, this isn't a long presentation, but it builds up to some really interesting questions and ideas. However, uh, Bruce begins this talk by telling a few stories about Terrence McKenna, that I think you'll also enjoy. But it's uh, Bruce's idea that the universe may uh, be like the victim of a head concussion and is slowly waking up and becoming aware of itself that uh, really gets me to thinking about big picture ideas. And uh, this is an example of what I call psychedelic thinking. It has nothing to do at all with the ingestion of sacred medicines but it has everything to do with an expanded awareness of uh, who and what we are. And when Bruce gets on a roll, uh, at least for me, it's uh, always a psychedelic or mind-manifesting experience to uh, think about and expand on his ideas. But enough of my opinions. Uh, Let's just listen to Bruce now, and uh, you can come to your own conclusions. Uh, What I'm going to do, this is going to take approximately 33 minutes. Uh, I timed it this morning. 33-minute journey where we're going to start with and don't hold me to that. You can start throwing the cream pies uh, 34 minutes. So uh, we're going to kind of do a journey uh, starting with Terrence McKenna. So I know he's, he kept, keeps getting mentioned here. And we just did a series of lectures at Burning Man called Palenque Norte, which is the second year that he's been there. And you know, they're in honor of Palenque and honor of Terrence. We're going to kind of go from Terrence, and then we're going to go way out into the cosmos. And we may find him there. And then we're going to kind of try to come back. And so it's, it's quite a journey. I'm sorry it's the end of the day. I hope there's some caffeine molecules in some of the brains out there um, that need it. Um, Terrence, as you may know, died in the year 2000. Uh, I was at Terrence's house in April of 1999 when he looked terrible. Uh, we did a project with him where we built... Uh, his son, Finn McKenna, and several other people built a virtual world in cyberspace, and he went into this world, and people came in as avatars, as little characters, and then he did a talk. About 30 people showed up, uh, and he said, you know, I usually travel in a jumbo jet for six hours to talk to an audience of 30 people. 
so in the comfort of his home, there he was doing this, and people wrote trip reports. He was fascinated by virtual worlds and shared online spaces. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is his mind contained such visions that he described that he said, can these worlds be done? The visions that one of the visions he described was one of dancing Fabergé eggs. I think you've probably heard of dancing silvery Fabergé eggs. I said, Terrence, I don't think we're going to get there for a long time in computer rendering. But, you know, use your, you know, we'll use we'll to have, have hope. And he said, well, the good thing about this stuff is it's not scheduled yet. <laughs> so I said, yeah, there's a multi-billion dollar, massive multiplayer gaming industry out there. It's not scheduled. Um, anyway, so at Alchemical Arts, uh, which is a, a profound conference because it was really, it was the last conference Terrence was able to attend because he, uh, in, in May, he was started having seizures. In April, he told us we were staying with him. He said, I'm having dreams that I cannot explain. Now, from anybody else in the world, you think, well, you know, you have dreams, but not for Terrence. You know, Terrence really knew the landscape of all things big that could come into his mind, and he just couldn't understand these things. And, and he started suffering seizures in May. Went for a scan. The doctor came into his room and said, this will seem very ironic to you, but you have a tumor, a very large one, the shape of a mushroom. And Terrence said, this is very ironic. This tumor is the shape of a mushroom, but he had less than about 10 months to live. So we held this conference, and at one point, I don't know who suggested this, but Terrence laid down on the floor in a sort of a circular room, and we all lay down with our heads pointing toward Terrence to try to conjure up any vision that came to us. Some people wanted to try to heal him. I think it was... By this point, his, his literally the physical matter of his brain was dissolving. I mean, the man was dissolving. Um, he was very cognizant to the last moment, but he was just kind of coming apart. And uh, the vision that I that conjured into my brain was this sort of Fabergé egg on the side with poly, shining polygons with their sort of little cushions in there, and there was Terrence, and it was going up, and it was carrying him away. And uh, I told him later about this, uh, and somebody said, uh, that, that was like Terrence's getaway car. Sort of seriousness aside, uh, well, he was, in, he was in Marin County for the last few weeks of his life, people always attending to him. And then when he was really a couple of days from death, having trouble breathing, uh, he... Uh, one of the things that, that came over him, suddenly he sat like a romantic poet in the four-poster bed. He sat bolt upright in bed. And he said, it's all about love. Now, you probably do this all the time, but understand, Terrence was a serious four-brain case, head case. It was all, for him, it was all about words. Words and visions and pictures and, you know, weaving words together. He was a bard of words. And... He turned to somebody and said, you know, I've never really been a love bug. But it strikes me now, or because in a sense, the, the great powerful forebrain of this man was dissolving, and what was coming up into that was this overwhelming sense of love as he was approaching death. He said, the whole psychedelic movement, it's about love. It's not about all this other stuff. It's about love. You know, it was, it was pouring through and two days later, he was just sort of in bed, just you know, very, very little of him left. And he said, just before he died, he said, "No, I could, I could, could have got, got this wrong." But he said, "People keep on, keep on breathing. Just keep on breathing." 
And that was the last, the last of Terence McKenna. So from from there, in, in heroic ghost trip, if you come down to the thing, if you if you have some kind of an experience where you dissolve, where you're gone, um, you, I mean, how many how many people felt like they're almost gone, like. Now those kind of trips tend to strip away, they blow away stuff. I mean, and you come out of the, the bad phase, or the good phase, you might call it, there's like nothing left. There's this little shaking thing that's just you that survived that, and it comes into a new territory, and it's very open to things, because everything else has been blown away. And however method you use to get through that phase, is you're now open. And I did that once myself, and, and the words came, all it needs is love. You know, the Beatles have told us this, but you know, the, the little being wanted just wanted love. Um, and so I started to think about the Fabergé eggs and love and things like that, and it struck me in the last few years that the, 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 the overwhelming sense of powerful love is so big, it's almost bigger than a human being. It's bigger than you can make from inside. And maybe the dancing Fabergé eggs that Terence saw are so fantastical, and there's such a complete universe of these, these eggs. It was a civilization of dancing Fabergé eggs that it's almost sort of inconceivable that the memories that Terence had in his life, in his day-to-day life, could add up to making this self-consistent universe he saw. So I pose the question. Uh, does this stuff come from inside our bodies, from the complexity of our brains and our glial cells and whatever? It just may. Does it come from somewhere else? Now, for millennia, people have thought, of course, there's there's an outside, there's an ether, there's a god, there's 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 Mount Zeus, there's all these explanations for where these things come from. We're in a, a remarkable era, an era of opening of understanding in cosmology that I think is so big. When you, when you start to read, if you wade through Scientific American or Discover or whatever, you you start to, you read these articles and you start putting together, your mind starts to just like, oh my God, this picture's emerging. And of course, everyone's working in their specialty, but if you read this stuff, it's almost, it almost creates a sense of wonder. Every time you start reading, it's like, oh my God, it's almost a, a trip comes on because the, the, the picture that's emerging of the whole universe and maybe how it began and maybe how it's going to end is, is, dumbstrucking. And uh, so what I want to do is to kind of try to give you a real short summary of that picture, because it is an an awestrucking kind of a thing. And then maybe try to cast us out far into the future, maybe to the point of the death of the universe, because the universe, it seems, has a life cycle, just like you, just like a plant or a bird, or or, or in a a sense, a single star. The universe has a birth, a life, and a death. Um, and maybe it would suggest where some of this stuff, this big stuff, comes from. Maybe it comes comes from somewhere pretty remarkable. So it seems as though that the universe is a sort of self-contained thing, never loses any information. If you look out into the night sky, you're looking back billions of years in some cases, and everything's still there. I mean, the signals are very faint, but they're looking back to periods of the formation of the first stars now. They're looking back to the cosmic background radiations just formed, you know, at the point of, of, of the inflationary Big Bang. They're sort of seeing, you can like, oh, it's all there. The whole movie's recorded. There's nothing that's being lost. There's nothing dribbled over the edge and is lost. There's no files been deleted. You know, 
Sorry for you security people. It's all there. Um, that it seems as though there's a prof uh, Professor Arnold uh, Guth that has proposed that if you add up all the stuff, all of dark matter and the, the energy and the, the positive and negative energy and whatever, you add it all, it comes to zero. Adds to zero. Sums completely to zero. So it's actually, the universe is nothing in total. Space keeps things apart because if it was all in one spot, it would just flip out of existence. There's nothing there. So space and change make the dynamism. But there really is nothing. Adds to nothing. And it, when, what's interesting about all this is that, uh, you know, how did the universe start? Well, Guth says, well, it made this a random quantum fluctuation in the field. So there was this happy time, the time of Eden, when it was just a quantum field, everything was fluctuating properly, and then something didn't fluctuate properly, and it unpeeled into the entire universe. The potential energy is so big, a whole universe was formed. And maybe what's happening now is that you have this horrible pile of junk that appears even coming to get cleaned up. So all these black holes are like, the, the, the mechanism saying, oh, we've got to get this mess cleaned up. Um, and these black holes are sucking it all back in and everything is sort of the vacuum cleaners have begun. Maybe, maybe that's the process. So is, if, if that's the case, is the universe a one-shot error that's eventually going to get cleaned up and it'll be back to the quantum, the quantum field? Now, if the universe could continue to expand at a faster and faster rate, as seems to be evidenced by you know, what, what you can see, and therefore things... In the far future, galaxies will be so far apart you won't even be able to detect each other and stars will be all brown dwarfs and the stuff will just be going almost at the speed of light and it will basically matter and energy, the whole thing will evaporate into one big smear, the ball gone. The other alternative is that there is enough of this dark unknown matter to reverse that expansion and, and pull it back. Now, when it pulls back, of course it's going to, you know, that the universe is moving and change. It's not just sort of sitting there. It's always moving. So it's got to be expanding to, to a complete smear or it's going to pull back. When it pulls back, it's going to collapse down. It's like if you were re-entering Earth's orbit or, or something was crashing into the sun. It's being pulled back. And when it reaches that point, it's poof, it goes out of existence. And all the information, everything with it, so it will be gone. It will all add up to zero. So what if... Indeed, in, in this whole process, if you look out at the, at the universe, you, you probably could categorize all the stuff out there into two, class, two classes of stuff. Stars, they have birth, life, and death, but they don't really, they're not living things in the way we define it. If you look back to the very first stars, they're the same as the stars we have now. Stars have not evolved. They've not, they've not created any new structure. They just sort of appear and they crush a bunch of gases together and then they do something and then they have a blast and that would blow the material off to become a black hole and rocks have been rocks for all time. Rocks have, haven't changed and evolved new structures. And then there's this funny little thing called life which seems to go counter to all that and it's the other classification of stuff. And it's and, and where I had this epiphany about this was I was down in South Africa in a gold mine about 600 feet down below the surface. And South Africans are uh, they're not, you wouldn't say they're risk averse, they're, they're risk seeking uh, peoples. So they love to show off to tourists, so they, they have this great steam hammer, jackhammer, and there you are in this tunnel, stuff is drifting down, it's dark, and you're 600 feet down. Of course, they've gone down for miles, 
uh, and it's hot, and they're banging away on the, the side of the tunnel, chipping away some more gold, and saying, see, here's some gold, and, and, and it's oxidizing because there wasn't any oxygen in the atmosphere when this gold was laid down in a reef, just a, a little, little bits and pieces. And, and you're in there, and you're shaking, and the beams are shaking, and you're thinking, this whole thing's going to come down and crush my body. And the gold reef, uh, which was mined for a century, created great wealth in southern Africa, was uh, is two billion years old. No oxygen in the atmosphere two billion years ago, not enough for you. And I had this sort of epiphany that, so what? The mountain can come down and crush my bloody little body. You know, just there'll be no remnant of it left. But I'll tell you, the DNA in, in my cells is tougher and more persistent than this gold reef, Africa, most star systems, i.e., for three point some billion years, there's little sequences of information that have been coded. They're coded in every cell in your body that had unchanged. They go back, they march back billions of years. A mechanism called life was able to fight against all this crud and entropy and fires and brimstone and preserve this little piece of information forward, and it's called reproduction, it's called life. And that that process is tougher, it, it, it outlives the life of most stars. It's certainly older and tougher and more resilient than all the configurations of the continents. So in the middle of, of this great machine that's the universe, if you could think of a machine, you have these, this tiny process that fights against the odds and wins in the universal game to a point. I'll, I'll digress for, for a moment. I have a, this whole thing is a digression. Uh, there's a fellow named Chris Lampton, and I, many of you may know him, who started the artificial life field research. He started that field because one day, I think he fell out of a hang glider, he told me he was in a coma for two months. And this guy has broken almost every bone in his body, even before that. Uh, he likes to work with concrete, things like this. He built tree houses. And he, he told me that in the second month, as he started to come out of a coma, he started to sense his consciousness rebooting, coming back. And he said, it was like phases. There was one bit, and then another bit, and another bit. And I started to know I had a body, and then I rebooted. And, and I realized my consciousness was built out of emergent bits that just came together and started talking to each other, and another one was talking, and heard. And, and I said to Chris, well, what was the thing that was watching and feeling yourself rebooting? Was it sort of outside of you? And he's a curious idea. But it led to the idea that what if the universe, as this great big mass of stuff, has managed to create little bits of life here and there. Some of them go beyond the bacterial level, become more complex. Some of them start to look out at the universe and become aware of it. And, and maybe even communicate with other chunks of life here and there. What if the universe, like Chris Langton's brain, is gradually booting up an awareness of itself? Now why, is it, why would it do this? Why would it do this? Well, every living thing seems to be, you know, we have pigs, and we have them anesthetized to uh, get their tusks cut off. It was a horrible thing when they came out of anesthetic, because a pig is an animal that wants to be on its feet at all times, if it can't stand up, it's going to bash its head against hundreds of times against every surface known unless you can get to it and sit on it because it's trying to come back to consciousness and it knows what the right state for a pig should be and it's going to go crazy until it can be in the right state which is on all, four, all fours. 
And so watching the pig's emergent consciousness come back is a frightening thing. I mean, you want to run out of the pen. I mean, you're going to get killed. It's just a terrible thing. So in a sense, the universe is, is coming to consciousness. There's a certain urgency. Now, what is that urgency? Just like any living thing, uh, it's its own life. Its own. It wants to be alive. It wants to know itself, but it wants to survive. Well, what's going? What is the doom? What is its doom? Well, its doom probably is the collapse. So, in a sense, is the universe trying to boot itself into consciousness before it collapses back down? Now, consider when you're when you're a little blastule, when you when your egg is had the sperm and it's starting to duplicate and replicate. Little ball forms of cells. Uh, and it gets to a certain size. And a researcher friend of mine has written a, a giant poem about observing sonic waves going back and forth across this embryo. And they're very complex. And they're studying them. Because, of course, the key question in the embryo is what starts cell differentiation? Why does, why does, why does the whole thing start turning into a cup? And then you get your gut on the inside and your outside on the outside. What restarts that? And it seems, he claims that it's this complex sonic waves. Well, in the birth of the universe, up to a certain period, the universe was a gas, and massive sound waves were reverberating across the universe. And they were creating the structure of sheet walls of galaxies and everything you see. And you can see that structure from satellites launched recently, like WMAP. So at a certain point, just like in an embryo, the universe was a giant voice. And then it went silent. All the parts separated. There was no way to get sound waves across. Of course, we live in a gas ball, too. Is it a coincidence that having a gas or a liquid as a medium for resonant communication seems to be, to be present to make structure? That's one idea. So consider, if the universe is in it going into its, into its collapse phase, it's coming back down, what has happened? Maybe the largest engineering project undertaken in the universe, which is the sentient beings, the, the percentage of the universe which is actually organized into life is increasing. It's up to half a percent or something like that, which would be enormous. It's up to half a percent. And this collapse is occurring. There's a couple hundred thousand years left. What has to happen? Well, the sentient races are actually now quite physically close. Indeed, the period at which the universe will be again in a gas is coming, where the entire thing is going to be connected sonically again. Well, if the universe has managed to convert a percentage of itself into an aware stratum, those beings, of course, have to make a decision. Do we work together as a team because we know the inevitable? Or do we carry on what we've always been doing, as we do on this planet, fight with each other? argue over budget and, and, and allocations and resources and culture and difference? Or do we try to save the whole thing? Can you picture in some future universe entering the gas phase and there's this glowing cloud and the glowing cloud is getting brighter and brighter because it's actually the ignition of the sentience. And what are they doing? To, to do the engineering job of saving the universe from final annihilation, they have to do something pretty unusual. They have to sacrifice themselves completely. All those civilizations, all that history, all those beings have to give themselves over and dissolve themselves, like Terence's brain dissolving, to create a single entity. A single entity that can live and exist long enough in this collapsing universe to figure it out. 
So a baby is born. And an ignition happens. The gas phase is there. There's enough there. And the single, the whole universe is now a single conscious entity. Now, like any baby, you know, if you've had kids, they all think they're the universe, right? At the beginning. Air everything. They're the center of everything. There's nothing else. There's no other demands. So there would be a period, in, indeed, where this universe is actually this tremendous creation of love because the only way it could be created is in complete love. Anything else, anything short, would create something not whole enough to do this job. So this baby is created and born in love. And the baby can, has many abilities. The baby must start feeding. Like any baby, this baby feeds on knowledge. And where's the knowledge? It's totally contained within the cocktail universe. The universe didn't lose anything. It's able to look back and look back at you sitting here, look back at everything and, and try to figure out where its family is, where did it come from, and what, why is it here? Why is it created? And it has a little time. And like any sentient species, things are left to the damn last minute. So the whole project was delivered at the last minute. So that the baby is figured out, ooh, I'm getting really comfortable because I'm getting smaller and smaller, and ooh, that news, I'm about to be doomed. The great crime of all of this is the oneness was established that we all seek, we all seek to be part of it, and it's about to be extinguished. The baby has to use every, every deductive power, it has to call back through time for every piece of support it can get to figure out how to save everything. Now, why would it save everything? Why wouldn't it just say, that's fine, it was a great life, let's just go. Well, it's the prerogative of life. It's going to make that decision to, to preserve the investment, to preserve the legacy, to, to go on, just have a future. So the baby works it out. The baby sees physics and sees how it can do this job. And what does it do? It starts to turn its body. It has all the resources that this beck and call. It can, every molecule, every wave of energy, it can muster. As this collapse occurs, it starts to turn like almost like a dancer or a skater because it knows from having worked out everything that if it turns fast enough, it can kind of pull itself apart and pull, pull the big blob, which is about to collapse, into two blobs. So a gigantic cell mitosis happens. Two blobs, two bits of what was once one being, are now rotating like this. It's not the end of the story because those two pieces are so big that they're going to implode into inviolent weight and destroy most of what was there. So those two pieces have to mitose. And again and again and again until you have the safe level of the blastula that forms in every living being including that made you. That ball forms where each component is, can, can stand alone and can survive on its own. So where would that, where would the universe two, that's the second phase of the universe, what is it? It's now a colony, it's now a society, complete consciousness. But it has lost the one thing that had always been dreamed of, which was total unity. It's now a community again. And now has to work with all those things that communities do, including aloneness for the individuals. So where that second phase, that second life of the universe, should it, have, should it achieve it, who knows where it goes? Does it try to figure out how to change, make another quantum wiggle? It's hard to know. But trying to, trying to bring this back to Earth a little bit. Uh, 
so, in a sense, one of the, the, the weird things about all this, the new work on string theory and other things, is you might think, well, that's a remote event. You know, it's like the great quake, you know, we won't think about it and it's way out. Well, in some interpretations of string theory, we're kind of living along several string dimensions which resonate in a certain way, but there's so many dimensions that, in fact, all events that happened in the past and happen in the future are happening at once. What you're living in is, is a mesh. And it's kind of like a mesh that comes out, you know, you see big bang, big crunch, or something like this. this is one of the pictures drawn. Then, in fact, you're inside the resonance of things that are happening at the same time. Everything's happening at once. So, in fact, the event of the formation of that being and that being's looking back is happening all the time. You're just getting little cracked visions of that, little, little gaps where that comes through every once in a while. And that the power that you feel when love comes through you or when you see something and you have a vision that seems to be completely you know, out of this world, could it be coming from that future present event that is occurring that you're just tapping into, that you're just opening a little door to? That's the question. Could that be that where that is coming from? And are you part of that, that great project the universe is trying to do, which is to know itself and to, to then save itself, and the only way is through, through love? And would somebody like Jesus Christ have been a human being that just happened to be born with uh, an open valve, or maybe Buddha or, or Muhammad, open, an open valve to that massive form out there, or in there, that is this universal love. And that as a human being, they didn't kind of shut it off. They didn't kind of like, you know, do the, do the shutdown and, oh, gee, that's too powerful, I'm scared about that. They just simply, they couldn't help themselves, it just came out, I mean, blasting out. And that that's the way they where they live, they're tied into that all the time. It's a question. Um, so, in, in a sense, Terence having the, and we talked about autism, and we talked about uh, shutting down parts of the brain to see other, to have other things emerge. You know, as Terence's brain dissolved, literally physically dissolved, uh, what came rushing up through him was this tremendously powerful feeling about love that he could hardly, barely communicate. And maybe Terence's leaving us uh, allowed him to melt into that great, that space, into that project, to join that project. So maybe that while he was here, like all people who create communication with a resonant voice or make music and, and create a resonant vibration uh, with other humans through love, they're part of maybe that great project, and maybe Terence melted into that project, or was taken taken back into that project because he did have uh, that did come to him in the end. The last point is, is kind of a, a, a strange one: is that in your why did the universe create human beings? Um, this human brain, and we talk a lot about the brain. I've been told that there are more discrete pathways through the brain and there are exist then there are countable particles in the universe down to the quantum level. So the numbers are very big and this this thing, this jelly gray jelly mass that's been created in into us. So the universe has actually created a machine or a mechanism 
that can contain something that's a substantial portion of the vision of the whole universe. And that maybe that's part of, from the single cell, that's part of the drive, is to create a machine that is able to be large enough that it can look out into the cosmos and start by bits and pieces and fits and starts to put together the whole picture. You know, John Wheeler, the physicist and contemporary of Dick Feynman, says, perhaps the universe is something that's created uh, observers in order to then create the reality of itself, that the observation and the reality go step by step, so that if you get observers emerging, more structure emerges in the universe at the same time. So maybe your brain, you've got two, two things going for you. Your brain is maybe big enough to get a rendering of a fraction of the universe, the whole thing, to accept, not burn out like Johnny Mnemonic, but accept visions and things that are large enough, sort of in a sense like a, like a camera obscura. You can see the little fragments, and they're actually, your brain's big enough to carry those fragments that are very large. And the second thing is that you, through DNA and through the, the graciousness of our sun being so stable and not going through any dangerous parts of the galaxy for the last four billion years, your DNA have allowed you to go back four billion years and to, to journey around 65 times around the galaxy, etc., and that you've survived and you've given this incredible legacy of stability uh, to evolve to this, this point so that you can be a camera obscura on something. And uh, because you're here at this conference, what you're seeking is a connection with some greater thing. I mean, you take psychedelic, psychotropic to, uh, to tap into that. Well, maybe you're part of a great project that is uh, unfolding as we speak and that you're uh, citizens of. Um, I know it's a wacky idea, uh, but I, in a sense, after reading cos all this cosmology stuff, um, I, I, I kind of tend to want to believe that more than sort of traditional religious explanations. Because, my goodness, the, the people who looked at the night sky and followed leaders in white garb and whatnot didn't have this knowledge. And if they did, they'd blown their minds. They would said, oh, right, we'll create an even bigger vision for human spirituality if we had that knowledge. And some of them had that knowledge tacitly. Some of the, uh, the, the, the indigenous peoples did have a more profound knowledge of of where we are in the universe and we give them credit for it. So anyway, so I, I hope that that's, you know, and, and, and I think Terrence is out there. So if you, if you want to reach him, I think you can reach him through love at this point. This is his last message. And keep reading. So thank you. You know, uh, I've heard Bruce talk about the universe waking up before, but uh, with the metaphor of a person coming out of a coma, it is uh, finally coming into focus for me. Now I'm looking forward to uh, going back and replaying that short talk to see if I'm uh, finally grokking this big idea that uh, Bruce has passed along to us. But before I do that, I want to play something else for you. Uh, as you probably know, a few weeks ago, my wife and I spent several days at Ancient Oaks Farm visiting with Bruce. And uh, one evening, we were joined by Chris, a friend of ours from the Bay Area. And after we'd been uh, talking for an hour or so, we decided to turn on the MP3 recorder and capture a few of the ideas that we'd been kicking around. 
As you'll hear, uh, I was in the middle of making soup and serving it, which uh, adds a few sound effects of spoons clinking on bowls. But uh, overall, I think there are a few little gems here that are really worth saving. In particular, I want to be sure that you hear what Bruce has to say about the toll that online multitasking takes on our nervous systems. My guess is that uh, many of us spend far too much time in front of our computers. And the end result uh, may be that we're actually rewiring our nervous systems in some way. Now, I'm not saying this is bad or good. It's, uh, it just is. But it is something that I feel we should all at least be aware of, uh, something to pay attention to. I do know that we have a very sizable number of fellow saloners who live in China, and it may be that uh, some of them are working in one of the gaming sweatshops, or they might know someone who is. And if that's the case, I hope you take Bruce's warnings to heart, because uh, we certainly can't afford to lose someone who is still in their 20s. You know, there, there may not be any alternative in some cases, simply because it's the only work you can find to support your family. But I hope that you and your friends are also working on plans for some kind of a web-based business that you can transition into and get your eyes and brains away from these computer screens on such an intense basis. Of course, uh, there's also the possibility that uh, some of these whiz kids uh, already have uh, next-century nervous systems, as Timothy Leary speculated in a recent podcast. It's not really possible to say what's going on with all of this uh, intensive information overload we're experiencing, but uh, something's really different right now, that's for sure. So uh, let's take a listen to a small part of a long conversation that took place one cool evening among the tall trees at Ancient Oaks Farm. Here's where it's the double, the double-edged sword that we're on that wasn't predicted by any of these people. Nobody, no one predicted the day-to-day user experience of these systems. They the saw of it. Mm-hmm. the intensity of it and the way that, well, here's, here's how it works. And we can go redo some of the earlier stuff for a recording. Yeah, yeah. But here's, you're sitting there, your eyes are going here, 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 here. What that's doing, if you're in the wild, if you are a proto-human or a native person in the wild in the New Guinea, New Guinea jungle, and your eyes are doing this, it sends a signal to the body that there's danger. Right and that you're on the lookout, and it drives your cortisol mm-hmm. production, and it drives your adrenal system. Because it's like, that is it's a... stimulation. It's stimulation, and it creates the wired effect. Mm-hmm. And so all these people who, like Stuart Brand or, or others, or Dave or Dan, would think of the abstract, wonderful thing of unifying you know, a global village, mm-hmm. Doug Engelbart's vision, what they would think about that, but they did not understand the day-to-day that people who are running 10, 20, 16 hours a day in front of the screens doing that, that the, cha- the change that it would make yeah. in them, nobody understood that. No one predicted that. And and so when... Well, there's it, nothing that compelling in the beginning to keep you there that long. At Xerox Park there was. Yeah. So at Xerox Park, on the link... Mary Allen Wilkes, in 1965, the first person to have a computer in a private home, brought this link, you know, 600 pounds of computer home, plug it into the wall, you know, because it worked on 110 power. She would stay up all night writing this operating system. A woman wrote the first operating system on the first personal computer. Wow. So she really, got, was the first to get wired. She was the home. first person to get wired at home and to have a computer of her own. 
This is long before the homebrew club, mm-hmm. long before Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs. That's why we did the link restoration project right. to, to find who did this, who first experienced this. And there was a guy who came who had been a link programmer. He said, yeah, this in 63, 64, he would be in his link, and he would look up, and it was dawn. And he was like, but you know what? It was a great you know, all-nighters, mm-hmm. all-nighters coding, because the machine responded to you, and the tapes moved, and those graphics, and it was yours, and it was, it was very it was fast. And they would look up, and it was sunlight. And no one had ever gone through that experience before, and these were the pioneers that did that, this fellow and Mary Ellen Hulks, and people who used the link, John Lilly's group, that were, if they were, the link was actually taken away from him because he wasn't using it properly, but um, it's another story. Um, And they were like, there's the dolphin pool, there's the cable, and there's the computer there, um, water can get in, so they're going to fry the machine, it's not in a good position. They're trying to use it as a sensor to record the anyway, but anyway, so the link was where it started that experience, and one could say that radio electronics buffs were doing that kind of thing, and it was it was there before so this this beginning of this uh intense human personal interaction with a machine that seems like an, a piece of your brain, it's a piece yeah. of your personality. Yeah. It's Steve Wozniak described it as a little little universes that you completely create and shape. It's like an an extension of your own mind. That was brand new, and that was seductive and very addictive. And people created the whole world in in there, and nobody understood the that it's like exposing you to the most powerful drug ever given to primates. Which wasn't alcohol. It's not nicotine. It's not MDMA. It's not LSD. It's the computer-human interactions, the most powerful, yeah. profound, yeah. because it is a cortisol-producing machine, mm-hmm. and it is a brain-transforming, all-transforming machine. And so we're in this experiment, and I call it with Lorenzo. You remember, I wrote the essay, right? A giant un- unplanned experiment on you. Oh right, yeah, that's online. That's what the day. That's the, one of the first things that you put on your site, right? Right. 2001 or something. Um, so we're in the middle of a giant unplanned experiment on the entire human race. And on the positive side, on the Aquarian positive vision, is, yes, it, it has transformed humanity into the single grid of almost like a single thought bubble, a single, you know, stuff flies around the net. So yep. hoaxes fly around the net, make people yep. afraid of everything. Everything, exactly. But also they are aware of, say, the situation in Tibet instantly. Right. I think can be covered up by governments for, for any length of time. Right. And, and there's so much information, no one can control it. And, and, and uh, so you've got all of that. But the flip side is you have this... This, this this exposure to the nuclear reactor that is the that are, is this environment it's, and I think in, in, the, in the, it's almost like everyone smoked cigarettes in the late 1940s because it's just the style right. thing to do so the entire population is exposed to this incredibly hazardous carcinogen or oh it's all right that you you're in a coal mine or you're burning coal and in the 19th century in London is just a coal smog, whatever huge danger to the public that they only realized and cleaned the thing yeah. up. 
Mm-hmm. That's long after. Long after, and it took generations to understand the, the effects. And so I think we're in that right now. And you guys are people who weren't brought up with this. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a huge pleasure. You weren't brought up with it. I was. I came into it in my teens, mm. um, and the generation down, one generation down from me, came into it with un, unwired, unnetworked machines. And then the generation next is now the totally wired on the web, instant message, and cell phones, mobile. From birth. From birth. And so we're in that continuum, and we won't know the effects on the from birthers uh, for for a generation or several more generations. And I think that this is one of the themes that I like to talk about. And you said Leary and McKenna and whatnot had the upside. They they talked about the upside, yeah, yeah. Uh, but didn't understand the, the cost. So if any any sufficiently powerful technology is indistinguishable from magic, but it's also has the double-edged sword of doing the, the greatest good and has the potential of doing enormous harm, and, and and this one is going to do both. Most of our technologies have kind of gotten always, enormous. You know, they, they, they always do, and we this one we've rushed into so fast. Mm-hmm. And when you think of your lifestyle changes, I mean, I'm the, the positive Aquarian benefit is I can be here on the farm and make a living and draw in right. income without having to drive over right. a hill, and I can bring a whole community together here in a beautiful rural setting and make it happen without having, you know, a, a private fortune right. coming from an inherited parent or something like that. I, I can do it. I can draw in support mm-hmm. and I can draw in people and make everything happen. That's wonderful. But I, I think of think of the the um, gold diggers in China. The, the gold diggers are these guys that work the in these. Grizzly. Well, they're in sweatshops. Um, that are game-playing sweatshops. So if you are in World of Warcraft, oh, I know who you, mean, yeah. you hire a gold digger in China to play oh. the game up to a level to make your character become stronger. And they'll play like 20 hours at a time and win all the way up. So you're now more prestigious. And they you, have and sleeping quarters, don't they? There. Yeah. They and those guys, those guys, those guys, their brains are fried when they're like 25, 26 there. Right. That is that uses up their their future potentials used up. It's wiped out by that. Just like currency traders are by the time they're 26, 27 years old, they're they're not good anymore. They they've used up their quota, and they were really good when they were 22, and they were trading 100 billion dollars a day on the currency markets. But they really are they're washed up. Doesn't last. Isn't that interesting? Your brains are fried. They're fried. Currency right. traders, gamers, they lose their edge before fighter pilots, athletes. Yeah. You know, it's the the mind that's. The yeah. And and so how many people, just in jobs, you know, forget about, just in regular day to day boring jobs, they maintaining a bank's ATM system, writing Web 2.0 apps. As a consultant, um, there's now talk of this blogger burnout. There was a blogger, commit, two bloggers who committed suicide. Really? Yeah. In uh, the last six months or so, mm-hmm. they're paid by the paragraph. Or I read this, that. You read that? Well, no, the guy in. Um, Cat wants out. Um, 
I told you. A fascinating story. I read it in Wired. The two guys that killed themselves in almost identical manners. And they had big online... Uh, yeah. I mean, they feel like they're committed, but they just can't maintain so it, and what, they get depressed. And what, yeah, what happens is you can sleep, but you're still... The news is running 24 hours a day, and you have to... If you're going to be the top dog and earn the money, and they don't earn a whole lot. I mean, they might earn 70 grand, maybe a few earn six figures. But it's almost nothing. Yeah. And and they they have to be writing all the time and catching those stories are coming in so quickly. If they're like, we're working for Engadget, which tracks like new new hardware and stuff. And it's it's a young man's game, but it's a total burnout game. And and so there's the network and the demands of it eat you up, eat you alive. And so those people are casualties. Mm-hmm. So on the positive Aquarian side, news, this this mission, the, the news is there, and it's it's an amazing, wondrous thing. On the negative side, it chews people up. If you could balance the Aquarian energy, where you have the advantages of yeah. global connectivity and, how? and information, but also have the human empathy and the ability to disconnect and get together, like you know, face to face. That's what a lot of the, the people in our, our audience is, is they're craving. How do we find the others? You know, there's no way. That's why these little mini dialogues that's I think might be help here. You know, I don't don't really think I believe this, but it's a new thought that popped in that I need to chew on a little bit is I think a lot about why why do our brains have these receptors that are perfectly matched with these psychedelic plants that mm-hmm. are there. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the purpose? Now, that's one topic. Another topic is what you've been talking about, is how we humans that are getting so wired are, are just getting out of balance. And perhaps there is some down-the-road match between, a uh, uh, use for the psychedelics to get people... Well, that, into yeah, that that's, an, thing. that's an idea because certainly for me, when I've taken things and I won't say what, I mean, it really has been like an acupuncture. Acupuncture can do it too. Mm-hmm. We center you. It's amazingly powerful if you're open to it. Mm-hmm. The Western kind of acupuncture. All these emotions flood out of you. Your things flow in your body. And, and for the Rebbe, it worked. Mm. So the Rebbe, you know, I noticed all these Ball sounds are going to be on. The, oh, yeah. That's interesting. No, it's interesting because when you record in the future, sounds of eating. I don't know how it'll come out, but it's an well, interesting. Well, you know, one of the things that we're trying to encourage is people to sit around and have these conversations. Yeah. And we shouldn't be doing it in a sterile environment. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Compared, uh, playing so the re- the Rebbe, it works. He put him. He was on the table, had a full acupuncture treatment, and he felt. Oh, this really, it was intense. And he like, this worked. Worked for me, it'll work for my community. So he he ordered the members, the family members, and the this and that to go for treatment. So all these Hasidim, Orthodox Hasidim, were coming in on a regular basis so that they could come back down and become mm-hmm. human again and everything. And now, one of the things is there is no Rebbe for, for humankind. There's no Rebbe that's looking out over entire societies and saying, something's changing, it's a bad trend. I know it inside, and we don't have that kind of thing. 
So those Hasidim in Brooklyn are lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they're continuing, but it was something he was trying to fight the tide. But, you know, maybe we have to get to a critical point where there's enough people that are sleep-deprived or overstimulated or or whatever this is where, you know, really negative consequences take place before mm-hmm. it's, like, gotten bad enough that we really pop into another um, elevated state of consciousness where... It's where things are totally rewired, or um, no, there's, there's a supports your vision because we usually wait until. Well, yeah, that's the chaos thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I, there's I, there's a third way, and the third way is watching the young, highly energized burner attendee who's also wired, but is also incredibly tuned in to physical things and emotional things, and is a completely powerful in all aspects, yeah, and those. Yeah. They're amazing, yeah. and they're maintaining a balance by simply being in, intensified in all the areas and doing all the but things. But doing, doing the sensing of the body intensely. Yeah, they are. They're jumping out of airplanes. They're, they're, they're doing new forms of extreme sports that we only dreamed oh, right, about. The snowboarding. The snowboarding, snowboarding in the sky. In, yeah. With, oh, yeah. With sky snowboards. I've seen that. It's incredible stuff. The guys, the most extreme sport that there is, are these backpack uh, wings that have a jet aircraft and small jet motors on them. And the guys jump off a mountainside and they go, they they start hurtling down. They're reaching like two, three hundred miles an hour. And then they turn on these, uh, the the jets and then they're flight, they're in flight. And, And there's one video on YouTube that you can see where this guy He's like trying to impress his friends. Over the bridge? Well, it's, it's even worse. This guy goes, he skims, he's like 15 feet off of a cliff face where some of the other guys are next to a road high in the Alps, and he goes right past them at a, like 300 miles an hour. So he's he's diving and, and aerodynamically controlling himself in free fall. I mean, people free falling 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet. With this pack on there. And the pack allows them some control on the way down, and then they turn on the jets and then they're able to go up again and these guys can land they'll come up and they'll stall out and they'll step onto the ground so you just like a bird like a bird yeah they're a fixed wing aircraft they're a single person fixed wing aircraft with high thrust and they're able to manipulate and these guys are like 21 22 years old and their mental powers are unbelievable i mean i would be dead you know i would just jump off and die immediately you know but and and so you you can imagine the adrenaline rush that they're they're going through exceeds any possible adrenaline rush that they're getting by being Mm -hmm. online so by having a very physical total body in tune total danger total control of the body veneer control of everything their body is doing to to survive in that and a lot of fun, doing it as a playful thing, and surviving, <laughs> and, and breaching the frontiers. I mean, these guys. I mean, if if they keep going, and if they find a tall enough cliff like El Capitan, or even or even higher, because they can go down a whole mountainside, mm-hmm. they could break the speed of sound one really? person. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, when you're I wonder what that would do to a body, though. Right? Well, there's still air resistance, so you have to mm-hmm. be underpowered. You have to be powered mm-hmm. to get okay. over mm-hmm. 800 miles an hour. But yeah, nobody knows. But, yeah. but maybe within 
two decades, somebody well, they, will attempt a the sound old, barrier. Uh, Indy racers, nobody thought they could live if they hit 100 miles an hour, you know. Right, <laughs> right, and, and no one thought Chuck Yeager could survive right. on the Bell X-1, and then, then, of course, the Thrust 2, which was a Black Rock that broke the sound barrier on the Black yeah. Rock Desert right at Burning Man. They were like, the vehicle's going to disintegrate if it breaks the sound barrier at ground level. Nobody knew what would happen. Then yeah. they let the pilot live. And they did it twice. They had to break it one way, turn around, and go within an hour and break the, bar- the sound barrier again. And then they went in for beers at the Black Rock Cafe in Burlight. Oh, did they? Yeah. He rode his motorcycle into the cafe, and she had the cold beer for him. Because they heard the boom in Gerlach, and then they heard the second boom, and they know that they had done it. Yeah. That was in 97. That was the year that Burning, there were rain at Burning Man. Oh, yeah, the then, then yeah. yeah, and the mud, Burning Man mud yeah. year. And then the rain continued. And so when these teams arrived to that very spot, the plyo was covered with water. And they were like, we're running out of money. We're sitting around waiting for this plyo to dry out. And it dried out just enough that they could do it. Mm. And, and the, the British team was able to achieve it. And probably it was a little bit easier on the wheels because the... Uh, you know, it wasn't a dusty, it wasn't a, a fluffy plyo, it was a hard plyo, because it was just tried out. Might have helped them. Might have helped them. But that was, mm. and so, I don't know how we got on that topic, but. Well, the adrenaline rush. And certainly, you balance, yeah, yeah and, and for people like that, I mean, you meet astronauts, you meet people who go into this extreme uh, in mental, physical control, adrenaline and whatnot, they're pretty calm cookies. They're not as rattled, I think, by us mere mortals that get into computers and we get like overwhelmed by the experience and it becomes our whole lives. They know where the real, the rubber met the road and they know also how to cut off. They can turn on, turn off. They have power over themselves that we don't have. Like when I meet space station astronauts or shuttle astronauts, you sense a whole different personality there. You know, military test pod or any kind of pilot. There's a calm, there's a controlled yeah. aspect. Sometimes it's too much because you can't get into some of them. But there, I met a member at Johnson Space Center was in the elevator with this Russian cosmonaut. And man, I was like, that's a super being. Hmm. That is a super being. She's a mother. She's a, a, a cosmonaut has been in space multiple times. She's totally in self-control. She's also totally emotionally attuned and observant, and I just like almost crinkled up because I thought I'm this like little raisin of crinkled imperfection compared to a person who has that amount of, of training and awareness. And and you know, and is she enlightened? Um, it's hard to say. You'd have to. She might have the whole spiritual so side. I don't know. You didn't get to interact with her. I said hello, and that was it. That but was I it. sensed all like I. This is one of those but beings. But that could be one of that could be a projection of yours too. That that's what you see in somebody who's accomplished well, that. I, you know, I think of myself as fairly messy and sloppy. And when you see people like that, they're does that mean that they're really super beings? And that are they happier than the rest of us? Are they more um, attuned to life I and think, everything than the rest of us? Are I think they that they're. Well, they're Are they emotionally available? From her, I felt it, that it was most of the ast- some of the astronauts, maybe not, but most of them are because their their work is intensely social. 
you know, you've got a commander so that's on the, the balance part of it. Yeah, they're the intense. Adrenaline. The training, the, it's all crews. It's a, it's all it's a team, leadership team, yeah. teams, teams on the ground, hundreds of people supporting you. You're there by the grace of those people on the ground. They're your family. So that's the balancing, not the getting more and more adrenaline than and you the, get the, online. The adrenaline they have been born with probably this ability to uh, manage their adrenaline rushes and make them product, make them a survival mechanism rather than a go crazy and freak out mm-hmm. mechanism. I mean, it's like why do they why do they pick Neil Armstrong to step on the moon? They picked him on one based on one thing that happened as a Gemini six or Gemini seven. The two guys in Gemini they docked with this thing called the Agena, which is just an upper stage, it had a little bit of fuel on it. So they're practicing docking in orbit, and suddenly they're starting to tumble. And what Neil did, I mean, this is a classic test pilot. He's like, nobody in the ground can help you. You're starting to tumble. It's going faster. You're doing 30 RPM. I mean, try being in a tin can at 30 RPM, 60 RPM, right? Most people would have given up and said, I'm going to die and would black out. This guy is trying all the switches, one after the other, reasoning and turning. He literally was like, turn off all the thrusters on the Gemini. Didn't make any difference. Turned on another, he figured, well, maybe there's a thruster still going, Gemini is not telling me. Turned on thrusters to try to contract it. Didn't make a difference. Reason that it was thrusters on the Agena. They were luck. Uh, he couldn't control those thrusters. Now I had to figure, it's the Agena that's tumbling us. Something's. I have to turn all the freaking thrusters and try to counteract the entire Agena. So this is second by second by second. He's figuring this out. Switching in the ground is like, what is going on? You know, their heart monitors are gone crazy, because. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah Scared. And he he got it controlled. He he got it so that the you know the tumble was not uncontrolled. And then they did an emergency uh, undock from the Agena and said goodbye. And now they're out of fuel. So it's now okay. We got to use all. Of, now they're in emergency, but we got to use the rest of the fuel to to reenter. And so on that criteria alone, Neil Armstrong was picked. Yeah, because it was like this guy in the pinch yeah. in, in the most extreme things he maintained his cool and he used reason and he, he saved the, that mission Wasn't they would have been also dead the pilot of the, that test lander that went out of control well he his landings on, on all his test flights he would tend to use up tons of fuel and everything but I'll tell you I heard the true story of the Apollo 11 so Apollo 11 they were down to 20 seconds of fuel so what you heard in you heard after Houston, you know, or like tranquility, you know, engine cutoff. You heard that, mm-hmm. and tranquility, Houston the tranquility Eagles. base or what the Eagles have landed. Everybody in Houston's proud because the word Houston uttered first word. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, but what the response was from was from Houston. You remember it? No. You know, something we're really relieved we're all about to turn blue here. Oh, oh yeah. Because I did. they're holding their breath because the fuel was just down to no fuel. The reason they were so low, and this is Buzz Aldrin explaining it to me, this would be good for a podcast, I suppose. Yeah. Here's what Buzz told me at a conference about six, five or six years ago. He was in our team at a Boeing conference, and he's a crusty guy. You know, he'll talk. He's the guy who likes the publicity. Neil Armstrong is not. He became a college professor and was like, I don't. 
I don't go on the show and tell the animal circus of NASA, but Buzz always did. And so Buzz is the one that kisses the babies and has his picture taken and everything. And so I said, okay, you know, Buzz, can you tell us the last... I told him, look, there's this guy at Industrial Light and Magic has made this movie that you haven't seen yet, and it shows the view out the triangular window of of the Apollo 11 lunar modules that's coming in on final approach. And it shows uh, that Neil's view... Because in the in the movies it's showing they're looking down out of the triangular window and they're seeing the lunar surface, but they're not seeing the. He wasn't looking down; he was looking at his flight line, mm-hmm. his horizon, whatever he had, looking for a landing location. I said, "You should see this." And then that got Buzz started. He said, "Well, I'll tell you what happened." Because I asked him, "Well, this this particular reconstruction shows that the limb was swinging back and forth as it was coming down, and but." that we know what Neil was seeing out the window. Buzz wasn't seeing that same view. Buzz was operating other instruments. And he said, that triggered him. And and this is a point where Buzz kind of gets super mad. But I did it in such a way I didn't get him super mad, so he told me what really happened. He said, the effing rate limiter was broken. I said, what's the rate limiter? He said, well, you have this control thrust, pitch, pitch and yaw, it's like, Pitch is like this, roll is like this, and yaw is like this. And you would, on the limb, you would set to like 12 degrees on pitch, and, and, and it was supposed to pitch the vehicle up and stop and, and get you at this angle. Or you could do it like this or whatever. He said the effing rate limiter, the stop, didn't work. So... We would set it to 12 degrees, it would go to 12 degrees and keep going up. So then we'd have to manually pull back to get the platform stable. And he said the effing program managers did not admit that there was an effing problem. This is so it's good for radio. Um, <laughs> even internet radio. And, and I, to this day, they did not admit that their, their hardware was broken and we were stuck with a bro- broken ship. And so they're doing this all the way down off. Not again. It was rocking back and forth, using up fuel, 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 fuel. So in the middle of all this, you know, this is Apollo 11. This whole world's watching this, right? So in the middle of this, um, Neil sees a landing spot. He sees a, a bright patch of lunar ground. Only it happens to be on the on the other side of this substantial crater that was named West Crater, which they walked out to. And so he's aiming for that spot, and that's what John Knowles' movie shows. He was aiming for that spot, and this was not in the history books. And so they're coming up to West Crater, and they're swinging around like a crazy, like a bedstead, flying bedstead, which is the name of the trainer testing. And he, and what, what Buzz said is, we couldn't land any sooner than the spot Neil picked, because if we tried to land before West Crater with an unstable platform, and you're coming along, and, and you're, you have to pitch up to land and then drop yourself down to get that whole effect. And, and a te- any test pilot will tell you, you do not lose sight of a hazard. It's the last thing you want to do. If you have a hazard, you don't do something to lose sight of that hazard, and that crater was a hazard. So we had no choice. We had to aim for that thing, so we're going all the way over it. All the way like this, and then we finally pitched up. They had to do that to keep inside of the... To, to keep, keep stable. Inside. And then finally we pitch up and we go down, and they they landed pretty hard. 
and they, they crumpled up the crumpled zones, um, bang, like that, but they came down with a thump. And so the whole, what Buzz was explaining was the whole mythology that, that Neil was some fly boy and he didn't mind using up all his fuel was bullshit. Oh, it was bullshit. Our equipment wasn't working. We did what we, what we were supposed to do and we knew where we were going to go. And so that's not something that's in the history books. Well, about 15 minutes later, um, we were having a wrap-up of our meeting, and, and the Boeing people, including uh, Buzz Aldrin's son, Andy Aldrin, was part of this, this whole thing. And Buzz is sitting on his chair, and this is, a, this is a guy who invented orbital docking mechanics. He did all He invented all the math in the 1950s when he was a graduate student. He did all the formulas to show how to rendezvous and dock in orbit. What do you do? Mm-hmm. And so he understands platforms. And he picked up his chair. His chair was too close to the wall, and he was going to move it forward. Most of us just lean forward and drag our chair, but not Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin put the balls of his feet right under the chair, lifted the chair up in perfect balance, looked at all four of the foot pads of the chair, moved forward, and set it down. And I thought, only this man would move a chair this way. That's how he thinks of the world. It's a platform, and I'm on it. It needs to be stable. It needs to be stable. I have to know where my I am, and I have to do this in a total awareness. <laughs> and you know, so that is a unique mind, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And all part of why he was on Apollo 11 as well. Right. So that was the the story of Buzz Aldrin oh. and the landing on the moon. <laughs> so that'll make a good most Buzz story. Aldrin and the effing rate limiter. The effing rate limiter. <laughs> So, that's a good story. That's a good story. Right from right from him. Neil doesn't really remember. He doesn't have he a specific. He was busy, and you just don't retain the short. You're driving. You're multitasking, yeah. and you're going to lose the short-term memory, which is what they find in the clinic. In clinic clinical studies, is you you uh, you're on. Okay, you're on the phone, but you're also instant messaging and emailing. We've all done this. Galen knows immediately when I'm doing this. Six cents. Women would know it. But what will happen is the brain says, oh, they are trying to do two things at once. Then therefore I must use the short-term memory storage processing neuronal bundle to work that problem while they do this other problem. And after people do that, it's like, I don't even remember what I just said on that phone call. Am I going crazy? Am I getting dementia? No, because you just used up all the brain power was supposed to let you remember short-term yeah. things. And so we're now doing this constantly, 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 so the short-term memories just can't be stored. Now, of course, when you're 16, it probably works, and you even have, short, you have short-term memory for 13 chat sessions. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. It was difficult to know where to cut that off just now. Uh, the total conversation lasted for uh, three or four hours, and as you just heard, it covered a really wide range of topics. But I wanted to be sure that you heard the stories about the first moon landing. Uh, you know, this may not be the first public telling of that story, but it's the first time I've heard it, and I hope that you enjoyed that little bit of historical trivia as much as I did. One of the things that uh, Bruce mentioned just now was an essay he wrote in April of 2004 that he titled, A Gigantic Unplanned Experiment on You. 
And I'll put a link to that essay along with the program notes for today's podcast, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. But uh, that essay sets out in very specific detail some of the effects our online addictions are costing us. Let me just read the first paragraph and uh, see if any of this hits home. And I'm quoting here. You sit in front of your computer 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Your eyes dart about the screen to emails, instant messages, web pages, flashing banners, tasks. Then your machine crashes and you have to reboot. You find yourself attuned to every incoming note, your emotions compressed into the spaces between nanobursts of instant gratification or frustration. Your consciousness unites in lockstep with the machine's processes. Then you scroll down a long list and your eyes blur for a moment. Overload. You get up and walk around, but your mind is still spinning. You can't look anyone in the eye, but luckily, everyone else is in their cube. You grab a cup of coffee and sit back down with it. Now you are back in sync. Emails come and you bat them right back with succinct replies. You feel that cue diminishing somewhat. You feel mastery over the stack. You are wired. You hold your breath. Too much going on to breathe. Too much to miss if you take your attention away. You start to feel a bit dizzy and lean back. Breath returns. You feel a little buzz, but now there is also a low-level sense of unease in your body. I'd like to go on and read the rest of that essay for you right now, but I'll let you do that on your own. Uh, you know, we can joke about multitasking and information overload, but these are actually serious issues that uh, each of us should probably give a little consideration to. You know, near the end of Bruce's essay, he says, It may be that telling the stories of the casualties of this experiment is the best way to report its results to us. These people are our society's canaries in the mine. They are all around us, and you know some of them. Which brings me to an announcement about how, uh, eventually, you may be able to uh, have your own conversation with Bruce and his wife, Galen Brandt. Here's what's going to take place. Bruce and Galen uh, are embarking on a multi-year world tour where they're going to be meeting with small groups of people and harvesting ideas for what it's going to take to build conscious communities. And that's their theme, conscious communities, creating heartfelt, face-to-face -face communities in the 21st century. I'm going to read for you uh, a couple paragraphs from a little blurb that was sent out to uh, some of the people who are participating in uh, one of these uh, gatherings that Bruce and Galen are putting together. And uh, what we said in that email is, The 60s, tune-in, drop-out, and back-to-the-land movements were a response to that era's technological onrush. Those times seem quaint in comparison with today. We live in an era where real face-to-face -face interaction is increasingly rare and comes at a premium. Our lives and our minds are sliced and diced by ever-increasing waves of technological stimuli. Our working, driving, and living environments are increasingly slick and shiny with tech, but decidedly denatured. Our kids and grandkids are wired to the hilt and growing up with different brain development than we could ever have conceived or relate to. What are the consequences of this totally unique situation? Is humanity marching to an ever greater future, or will we experience a wholesale loss of emotional and empathetic lives? Will we need increasingly extreme experiences like Burning Man to reboot back into balance? Or can we conceive of new forms of in-person community in the 21st century that can return us back to the land of face-to-face -face, but keep us relevant and connected to the world? 
Can the Internet be used as a powerful lever to bring into being meaningful gatherings in heartfelt and beautiful spaces? Can we convert the place in which we live into such spaces? Now, if you'd like Bruce and Galen to visit your area and uh, kickstart your own Plylog Salon, well, there may be a way. Uh, as you will find if you go to Bruce's website, Damer, D-A-M-E-R, Damer.com, he is a very much requested futurist speaker. And uh, so the plan is that whenever possible, after one of his regular speaking gigs, Bruce, and in most cases Galen as well, will be able to get together with some of the organizers of that event and their friends and uh, hold a local Plylog salon that hopefully will continue on a monthly basis after that. As you can see, uh, this is an experiment that uh, may or may not get some traction, but if it does, I think we may be able to uh, record and podcast uh, some of your local salon conversations in an attempt to uh, link together more and more of our fellow saloners in face-to-face meetings. We'll have to see how this takes off, uh, but if you'd like to know more about uh, setting something like this up in your own area, you can contact Bruce directly at www.damer.com slash forms slash comment.html and I'll put that link on the website too. Now for uh, a little other news from the world of psychedelics and uh, this comes from one of Terence McKenna's favorite magazines, Scientific American. One of the stories was about uh, what we were talking about last week, addiction. Uh, the addiction this story is about is uh, nicotine. And basically it repeats what we already knew, and that is the fact that nicotine is one of the most addictive substances around. In fact, uh, the latest research shows that symptoms of addiction, such as withdrawal, can appear in the first weeks of cigarette smoking. And uh, unfortunately, I can attest to that myself. In fact, cigarettes were my gateway drug. Uh, I think I had my first cigarette out behind our old garage when I was still in grammar school. And by the time I found myself in the Navy, I was smoking over two packs a day. It wasn't easy, but uh, I kicked that habit back in the 60s, and uh, that is probably one of the reasons I'm still alive. I know that it's really cool for young people to smoke. In fact, I thought I was pretty cool myself as a high school and college smoker. But eventually you're going to have to quit if you want to uh, live past 50. So if you are uh, currently hooked on cigarettes, you might want to think about going cold turkey today. You're going to have to do it eventually, so uh, why not right now? But it, uh, it wasn't the addiction article that uh, caught my eye in the May 2008 issue. What caught my eye first in that edition was a photo of an older woman having a toke at the Seattle Hemp Fest. The title of the article was, When I'm 64. And it uh, carried the subtitle, quote, For many baby boomers, recreational drugs continue as a way of life, close quote. Well, duh. <laughs> of course, uh, the article assumes the only kind of drug use possible is recreational. And I'm all for that, by the way. I, uh, I think that recreational use of drugs is a much better pastime than shooting small animals or jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. However, uh, as we all know, there's a, a lot more to these sacred medicines than just dancing all night. But the article is also a fun read. It has some really great lines in it like... Grandma and Grandpa are passing the time in their rockers and passing a joint back and forth as they recall their youthful marijuana-smoking days in Haight-Ashbury. Well, uh, I fit the demographic, but I don't own a rocking chair, and uh, I didn't even try cannabis until I was 42 years old. 
What is kind of funny about this article is the fact that the authorities, whomever they are, were shocked by the fact that people didn't quit using these substances when they got older. That kind of thinking is uh, like saying only young people enjoy orgasms, I guess. Then there are some uh, other funny lines in the article, too, like when the author says, Intriguingly, the so-called cannabinoid system, which mediates the effects of marijuana in the brain, reduces addictive behavior in aging mice that have been genetically altered to crave alcohol. <laughs> but uh, then more or less uh, the article dismisses this important bit of information and goes on to express surprise that the elderly abuse drugs. That's their thought, not mine. So uh, let's get this straight. The scientific establishment sees smoking cannabis as drug abuse, but using alcohol as normal. And since no one has ever died from an overdose of cannabis or from lung cancer after smoking it, I fail to see why they continue to research what they call abuse and addiction, and yet ignore the fact that these substances have already been shown to be very effective in the treatment of alcoholism uh, and some other very serious diseases. Another sad story from the drug war was uh, in the local news just this morning. It seems that uh, after one year of undercover operations, over a hundred students at San Diego State University were arrested and uh, their lives effectively destroyed in what was billed as a major drug bust. And uh, with only one or two exceptions, of course, these uh, big-time drug dealers only sold or shared a little with a friend. But uh, here is the most insidious part of this story. Apparently, the university invited the federal government onto their campus and allowed them to infiltrate student organizations. That's right. For a year or so, many of the student organizations had DEA agents working undercover in their meetings. Now, how sick is that? I don't know if the DEA snakes are still crawling around the campus at San Diego State, but I do know that it's going to be almost impossible to have any discussion about drugs on that campus without having to worry about who might be listening. I wonder how many other hundreds of students there are now in government computers uh, who are labeled as being people sympathetic to ending the war on drugs. It looks like you can forget free speech at SD State because uh, Big Brother has infiltrated your dorms and clubs. What a sad commentary this is on American culture. Here we are in the 21st century, and yet we find ourselves living in a culture that prohibits the use of naturally growing plants, but which approves putting all kinds of chemicals into our food supply. You probably read this yourself, but uh, did you know that some of those low-sodium foods you're purchasing contain a chemical that turns off the bitter flavor receptors in your tongue so that they can sell you some horrible-tasting, chemically-enhanced food? And what is more, the food manufacturers don't even have to tell you that it's in the product they're pushing on you. Maybe it's safe to short-circuit your bitter flavor receptors, but the only safety test of this chemical was a three-month study done on rats. Yet Kraft, Nestle, Coca-Cola, and the Campbell Soup Company are all using it today because it allows them to cut back on sugar and sodium levels without having their customers spit out the bitter food products they've concocted. You know... Uh, what is going on these days is total insanity. And I'm sure that if enough people knew about these kinds of things, there would be uh, riots in the street. Yet, uh, sadly, the information is available, but not many people are turning to it. But hey, uh, you and I are tuned in, and uh, that's not a bad start. 
On another note, uh, several of our fellow saloners have written to ask about Gary Fisher's work where he was uh, using psychedelic medicines with severely emotionally disturbed children. And uh, they wrote to ask if there was anything about this work that was published. Well, uh, so far the answer to that question is no, but uh, one of the things I'm doing that keeps me from answering all of the email that comes in is that I'm almost finished typing the only report that Gary wrote about that project. He gave me a copy of an old draft that he wrote in 1963, and I'm rekeying it uh, and removing any personal information that wouldn't be appropriate for a public document. And as soon as I finish uh, that and uh, Gary approves it, I'll be posting it on our website and uh, possibly along with some comments about it from Dr. Charlie Grobe. So that's the kind of thing I'm doing with my free time these days. Uh, But once I get a few of these other projects completed, I'll try to do a little better about uh, keeping up with email. A while back, I had to uh, move 400 unanswered emails out of my inbox to a folder I'd labeled To Be Answered. And... uh, Since then, I've done it one more time, and just now I moved my third batch of 400 messages into that folder. So the chances of me uh, ever catching up are pretty slim. You know, that's the the kind of project I've been saving for when I got old and retired. But now that I'm old and retired, uh, (laughs) I don't have time for those things because of my podcasting hobby. It's a great problem to have, don't you think? Anyway, I still wish I could keep up with all of the email, and uh, I particularly feel bad about not sending thank yous for the donations and CDs and artwork and DVDs that uh, some of our fellow saloners have sent. It's really amazing to get all these things, and and I do set aside the time to watch or listen to them, and believe me, I I deeply appreciate your thoughts and gifts. Uh, Hopefully you'll understand that I do appreciate you guys and everything you do for me, but I just can't get back to each one of you personally. Well, I guess that's about it for today, and as always, I want to close by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for this podcast. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.